family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host, and we look forward to some improvisational conversation as we begin a new decade. And to do that, we'll delve into some rather complex, interesting, pertinent questions, such as, is there really anything such as an individual human brain? Maybe, actually, maybe not. We'll, we'll talk about that. A uh, book that was written in the 1980s, but it's as relevant today as it was then, called The Society of Mind. Is the butterfly effect real? That's connected to it. We'll dip again into the book Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And we'll even see how that connects with the quantum and the lotus, a journey to the frontiers where science and Buddhism meet. All grist for the mill and helping us turn the mill. Not one but two co-hosts today are Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan, which means we get an original poem. Uh, and Ron Van Warmer is here. You know he plays great music for us on the weekends here at Radio Woodstock. He joins in the conversation as well. The Sultan of Sonic Soul will be in live to play some cool jazz for us. Might even be hot jazz. We're not sure what the temperature is going to be. We just know it's going to be good jazz. And we'll have an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. If that's not enough, we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox and celebrate one of the most amazing voices of the past 50 years. So, fasten your seatbelts. Inject some caffeine or whatever else gets you up in the morning. And away we go with the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Um, not quite sure what's going on with these headsets, but I feel like I'm on a uh, planet other than, than <laughs> Earth. <laughs> How are yours, Victoria? Um, they there was a live okay, now. It just came in. Yes. What you just, whatever you just did, now it sounds normal. Oh, good. I think Hal's just playing is, with mine us. Mine is still yeah. out. Yours is now out. Now yours is out. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh. we're in a quantum vortex <laughs> here. I don't know what a quantum vortex is, but I think we're in one. At any rate, we will carry forward. And uh, happy New Year, everybody! By the way, uh, this is our first show of. A new decade. Yes, and an exciting one just because of the name 2020. It does have I a, think a yeah. lot of people are liking that. It looks so like such a together number. You know, I, two, I said, oh, two, oh. I, I hope it's a year of clarity. As clear as it looks. 2020. 2020 uh, vision. vision. 2020 vision. Yeah. It's a year of clarity. Well, um, <laughs> we're or claret, wine. Sooner rather than later, we're going to get Lois Martin back on the show, our favorite numerologist. Mm. Because she will have a lot to tell us about oh. the deeper meanings of 2020. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And I, 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 I was always interested, I think a lot of people are, in the butterfly effect. Because we all have heard of it. We all sort of have a sense of what it means, but not really. So I thought I'd dive into it a little bit. 
And it turns out to connect some of the other things that uh, we've been talking about here on the program, about the, the, the interface between the human mind and computer brain. If you don't think that is the story of the next decade, you haven't been paying attention because every time we're on a digital screen, which is much of the time, uh, we're not just taking in information. Uh, we are interacting with another form of intelligence. Right, and it's checking us out. It's checking us out. Mm. We're checking in out. We're exploring each other. And if we do it right, there's some indication, at least some neuroscientists, philosophers, uh, and computer engineers are doing it right. We will use advanced computer intelligence to look into our own brains and minds to figure out things we couldn't have known about it. So, for example, um, we have MRI and we have uh, all kinds of imaging machines that can look inside the human brain as the brain is doing things. Right. That's because of computer technology. As the brain is processing, which is a word that we use with computers, too. Mm -hmm. mm. And... One of the really intriguing connections between the human brain and the computer brain, and they are very different in many ways, is that we know, we don't like to talk about it. I know this because I spent 10 years studying dreams and getting certified in it. And what I discovered was everyone says they're interested in their dreams, but very few people actually want to take the time and the energy required to really dig into them, right? And they're fascinating reservoirs of information. But they're a language that has to be learned, mm -hmm. right? My favorite thing is the people who say that they don't dream. And you'll think, oh, yeah, really? Oh, wow, mm -hmm. that's great. Well, here's and you <laughs> must be insane. Yeah, if, if we didn't dream, we would all be in institutions <laughs> on heavy drugs. Uh, because among its uh, functions is a safety is like a, a pressure valve that releases pressure right. from what's you know, called when, when people don't remember something, they think it doesn't exist. Right. And I had a very clear example of that recently, and then we can get back to the butterfly effect, because it was so weird to me. I was at my son's house, and there was this gorgeous sunset, and a friend was with me. I mean, sunrise. It was beautiful. It was this hot red. And he said, well, we don't have those in Saugerties. And I said, well, <laughs> yes, we do. No, we don't. I said, well, many mornings when I get up, these days right around 7 o'clock. Not every day, because sometimes it's too great. There's a gorgeous red sunrise off my porch. And I've been known to step out there in 20-degree weather because it's so beautiful. And he said, no, it's not there. Then I discovered how his house is set. He doesn't have any part of his house where there are windows looking east. Mm. So since he hasn't seen it, he, he gets exist. up in the morning, he looks out the window. And, I mean, it makes sense if you never saw it and you did get up at that hour and you did look out your windows. You just have to look out the right window. And there aren't any windows on the east side of his hmm. house. Well, it's, you know, that's <laughs> very good because um, we, we now know that somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of all of our behavior is generated from what's called the unconscious it's called the unconscious because we don't it's dark we don't can't penetrate it right right so the vast majority of who we are we don't know so we call it the unconscious now the good news is if we take the time we can see the results of that unconscious and trace back and learn a lot more about it particularly through dreams and intuitions etc well, the analogy with computers is the big concern of computer engineers is as these computers get smarter and smarter and are now teaching themselves without our help, um, 
we call it the black box that we well we can't see into the computer to see its processing so how do we know it's not going to do something really destructive because they call it the black box effect Mm -hmm. so and then if we look at astronomy with all the advances amazing advantages and advances we've made thanks to increasingly powerful telescopes Astronomers tell us that somewhere between I don't, 90 and 98 percent of the universe is what they call dark matter and dark energy. Why do they call it that? Because they don't know what it is. <laughs> it's too dark to penetrate. So there's we there, there's this interesting analogy among the human brain and it's and the unconscious, the computer brain, what's called the black box, and the universe itself. Mm-hmm. Out of which, of course, we came, and out of which the computers came, right? The computer, the computer cr- came out of the human brain. The human brain came out of evolution, which came out of the universe. So there's a lot of dark stuff in there, and and we don't like to deal with the dark. It's overwhelming. It's also where all the action is. I mean, the great <laughs> Carl Jung, the most influential psychologist of the 20th century, famously said that uh, the beauty of dream work is. That down in that in the darkest, most disturbing dreams is the gold of wisdom and insight. Right. Well, when I say it's overwhelming, I don't mean I wouldn't necessarily take that passage into the unconscious because I would. Well, we know you have because otherwise you couldn't have, you couldn't write the poems that you read to us. But I think as a human being, if you start to think about these issues, you see yourself as this little creature, which you think is on a big planet. Only when you start thinking about the solar system, our planet isn't that big. And then when you start thinking about beyond the solar system, and then you start feeling like, well, I'm a speck of dust (laughs) on a slightly bigger dust ball (laughs) amongst a bunch of other dust balls that are way smaller. (laughs) And it's sort of like trying to figure out. I remember as a child, like trying to figure out infinity or things like that, you know, and or people with money. I mean, I have a friend who recently said of someone, well, he's very rich, you know, he's really rich, he's he's a millionaire. And I said, hey, millionaire isn't very rich now. <laughs> lots of people are millionaires. I mm-hmm. mean, lots of people aren't millionaires, but lots of people have a million dollars. That's like, I mean, these young people that are pulling down salaries of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, it's not going to take them long to build it up to a million. So... But then you say, well, how about a billionaire? And people can't figure out what that number means, billion. And then you have multi-billionaire. So, like, if you do that same kind of math in and out and you start talking about all that black matter, it's <laughs> it's overwhelming. Well, I'll throw another one in there that we've talked about, which is the difference between exponential increase and arithmetic increase. Right, which right. Is the, I know you're fond of that, and that's a good well, one. Well, it's good because, again— <laughs> See now here here's here's where we get into a little uh, why I I am not a Buddhist uh, uh, but I love the Buddha's insights and I love a lot of the Zen insights because they seem to have developed not a perfect but a pretty darn good um, practice for the human mind to relate to these ridiculously complex issues which is kind of to accept a paradox which is that on the one hand, we are mere specks. Let's get off our high horse. Uh, On the other hand, there's a potential in us to be 
conscious in a way that's quite remarkable and may connect us to some larger forces in the in mm-hmm. the universe. Um, so I, I like the attitude of we're both kind of meaningless and meaningful at the same time. Yes, <laughs> I, I think that's true. And it depends on how you wake up one day, which it is. Yeah. I think we just have to resign ourselves to the, the fact that we're here to entertain ourselves. Our, or somebody. Well, <laughs> one of our patron saints you know. here, George Carlin, at the end of his life really came to that and kind of freaked people out because he was, as only he could be, brutally honest about <laughs> it. And I, 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 I love watching the interviews he did. They're on YouTube. With, and the interview is going like, okay, George, yeah, but you're joking, right? And he goes, no, I'm not. We're basically, George says, I've given up on humanity. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm just sitting back and watching the freak show and enjoying it. Yeah. And they would look at him and go, oh, okay, you're just being like a comic. He's, no, 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 this is what I'm actually <laughs> doing. And they go, well, no, you don't really mean that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And uh, that's why we love him. But um, uh, it isn't, yeah, I mean, we can see it both as an amazing show. Uh-huh. Uh, and that show can be really frightening and devastating and beautiful and uh, meaningful. It's all in one package. Yeah. But we don't like that. We want it a lot neater than that. Yeah. Well, maybe a lot of the black matter that uh, is out there today will become clearer when we can understand it. Possibly, but if you, I doubt it. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of there was a lot more black matter that we didn't understand, so we just accepted it as something, and then we we figured it out, and it became clear to us that this is uh, how reality. True, is. but again, and, and again, I don't know. But in my reading of the subject, um, I haven't heard any astronomer say, oh, in another 20 years, we're going to have most of this figured out. <laughs> no. They're Happily. Not. They're, you not, know, they're not saying that. No, and when we say that about almost anything, very often it isn't true. They've been right. trying to cure cancer now for, what, about 60 or 70 years? Hey, it's cells run amok. How likely are you going to be able to get that? You could get it under control, but I don't think you're going to wipe it out. Right. So we have, uh, I guess the question is, how do, how do we exist in a, in a world where we're both meaningful and not? Uh, so let's talk about the butterfly effect, because it kind of gets at it a little bit. So just because we've all heard the phrase, and that's why I was fascinated to, and I searched for one that, uh, an explanation that's not so technical that my eyes cross and can't uncross, you know, because I'm not a scientist, right? I'm assuming most of our listeners are not PhDs and in, Physics. Uh, in complex theory, uh, so this I think this this person explains it pretty well. But what do you what do you when you hear butterfly effect? What do you what does that conjure up in you? I have to admit that I'm waiting for you to define it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, all I can see is like the butterfly's wings going at a very fast rate. I mean, I would think a bit transformation, but I don't think that's it. I think it's something about the physicality of the butterfly. Right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what uh, comes to mind with the butterfly okay. effect. What, so t- I, what, what had come to mind, my mind was s- on the way to being accurate, but not, uh-huh. which is because I remember the example given, which was, I had the example slightly wrong, which is if a butterfly flaps its wings off the coast of Japan, uh-huh. it can create a tornado in Kansas. Right. Mm. Something escalated. Because everything is so connected that even a small force somewhere can create a much larger effect. All right. So um, that's has a, a reflects part of the truth of it, but not all of it. So here we go. This is from a magazine called Seeker. 
which is a, <laughs> yeah. a web magazine, good name. Yeah. And the author who did a good job of explaining this is Trace Dominguez. Uh, subtitle, most of us have heard of the butterfly effect, but is it real? And what is chaos theory? So again, we've uh-huh. all heard of chaos theory. And what's interesting is both the butterfly effect and chaos theory mean almost the exact opposite of what most people think it means, huh. which is always a fun thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because we know opposites attract. Um, when you hear chaos theory, what do you think that, what does that mean? Well, now that you've said it's the opposite, I think it means that there's a complex relationship in any situation that we think is chaotic. That was a good BS answer, boy. I, <laughs> I, I bought her answer, and I know she didn't think I'd have any confidence in it. It sounded right, though. That was very good. This is everything uh, goes to chaos. Everything. That's what we would think. Chaos flows to say, chaos. Think, think that everything, like entropy, just becomes right. chaos. It's actually the opposite of that, oh. which is why the, calling it chaos theory was like a perverse measure uh-huh. of somebody. Uh, so let's get into why the, how the butterfly effect and chaos theory are intimately connected. The scientific notion referred to as the butterfly effect always comes with the same story. A butterfly flaps its wings in one place and causes a hurricane halfway around the world. Right. Now, let's just think of that for a second along with chaos theory. If that, in fact, is true, does that make us feel better or a little more precarious about life? <laughs> a little more precarious, oh, I yeah. would say. Wait a minute. You're telling me I'm sitting here in Woodstock, New York, and some freaking butterfly is flapping its <laughs> wings, and in four days, I'm going to be in the middle of a hurricane? Yeah. But that's like a person who doesn't want to look at their dreams. <laughs> Well, yeah, oh, good, good analogy. That's why she's the poet. That's right. Exactly. Instead of saying, well, wait a minute, why don't we try to figure this out and get a, get a better understanding of it? No, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I want to know that cause and effect is something I can have more control over. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to know that the effects in my life are going to be caused by things that I have control over. Wow. You're in trouble. Uh, for those people who believe that, check, please. <laughs> yes. Okay. The scientific notion referred to as the butterfly effect always comes with the same story. A butterfly flaps its wings in one place, causes a hurricane halfway around the world. The story has become a kind of pop culture artifact, like a quasi-scientific urban legend. (laughs) Some history. In 1961, MIT meteorology professor Edward Lorenz was inputting numbers into a computer program. Now, in 61, computers were pretty primitive compared Mm -hmm. to today, but they were churning out some pretty interesting results. So he was putting a lot of numbers into a computer to simulate weather patterns. Running the numbers a second time, he rounded off figures from six decimal places to three decimal places, figuring that wouldn't change much. To his great surprise, the few fractions of a fraction of a fraction changed the simulation completely Hmm. Mm. it's like when we say we'll round it off to the nearest zero right that doesn't usually cause a problem Uh right in other words if you calculate your commission on a sale to a hundred dollars and point oh 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 for cents, <laughs> you're not going to complain if all you get is a hundred bucks. Right. 
the point, the, the four thousandth of a cent is not going to, doesn't even compute. We don't even have currency for that. Right. So we like to think that there's no problem rounding off a number like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out in the universe, it does make a big difference, as Lorenz found out. The incident led Lorenz to a profound mathematical insight on how large systems like global weather patterns actually work. The simulation suggested that tiny initial changes in big systems could have extremely complex results. His insight became a bedrock principle in mathematics that's now known as chaos theory. Uh Uh-huh. That a very, very, very infinitesimal change at the beginning of a process can have a huge effect on the end result. Right. Okay. Now, in 1972, now we're 11 years later, Lorenz presented a scientific paper with an interesting name. You know, usually scientific papers have names that just make your eyes cross and can't uncross again. This was called Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? It was actually (laughs) the title of his paper. (laughs) That'll get people to read. Who wouldn't go to that? Yeah. (laughs) Who wouldn't wouldn't go to that uh, uh, talk or read that paper? The concept of the butterfly effect comes from the title of this presentation, but its meaning has gradually altered in the 50 years of retelling. Mm. Now, we all know the game of telephone. Things Uh get changed. The point of the scenario is not that the Brazil butterfly caused the Texas tornado. That's what I would have thought, right? Right. In the Newtonian universe of cause and effect, what Lorenz is saying is, a fractional change in the initial stage of something can have a huge effect on the result. But that doesn't mean that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil is going to cause a Texas tornado. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. The butterfly effect, also known as the sensitive dependence on initial conditions effect. Not as exciting. No. No. basically tells us that causality is virtually impossible to determine in complex systems. So in other words, the point Uh isn't that, oh, we can trace that Texas tornado back to a butterfly flapping its wings off the coast of Brazil. No. The point is that weather is so complex because literally every molecule is affected by every other molecule, right? And... This helps explain why what just happened Friday in Iraq is so disturbing on a geopolitical mm. end. Is that, do we really think the Trump uh, administration thought out all the possible ramifications of killing the most popular general of, of Iran? Of well, course they the have. the problem is, <laughs> in and a we can't predict like that, it. We no. can't predict that, it. That is the opposite, really, I think, of the, of the butterfly effect. I mean, it's like so obvious that what they did would probably have some pretty terrible ramifications. But we don't know what those ramifications are. We don't, but we know that they'll be negative. Right. (laughs) And that's a bad example of the butterfly effect, only in the sense that it's not a small initial condition. That's the thing. I mean, it's also, it's like, duh. Okay. But here's the point. (laughs) While we 
properly, hopefully, condemn that act for a lot of reasons. Yeah. The fact is that a complex situation like the Middle East, even without actions like that, we have no right. idea. In other words, a, a, an action that would be what's closer. What's going to emerge it's out like of So the butterfly would be someone picking up a rock and throwing it through a window and breaking a window of a significant uh, person in the Middle East who you didn't think it was going to no, break their not window. Even or a, their, not, even a, there. not even a significant <laughs> person's window. There, there, was, there, was, there was a... Uh, uh, I forget, I don't know what you call it, a teaching tale or something. I remember there was some kind of story where, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my goodness. I actually remember this. <laughs> Doug is this, very excited. This was a, well, you know I'm not a nostalgic guy. This was a terrible film we had to watch in, like, fifth grade. That was so ridiculous. We even knew it was ridiculous as fifth graders. It was a film that was trying to explain why anger can be a bad thing. Hmm. But the thing was so bad, it was hilarious. And so it didn't do, but I remember what it basically said was a guy wakes up in a bed, he wakes up and he like, doesn't like the grapefruit that he's eating, that his wife serves him. And he gets mad. So she gets mad at him for complaining. He's now upset. So he goes out and he backs up the car in the driveway a little too fast being upset not paying attention and ends up backing into somebody coming down the road and that person gets so irate and the whole thing turns out and all of a sudden you have a whole neighborhood like up in arms and the purpose <laughs> the purpose of the film was to say you shouldn't you know how the, the danger of anger but the whole thing was so hilariously poorly done we just thought it was a comedy <laughs> at which point you started throwing things around the room and creating yeah, and, some right, chaos. And creating chaos but the point was that it's true somebody getting angry for no good reason right in his or her home can set off a series of events that ends up in somebody getting killed well right, right? Is that, did did the killing of franz ferdinand start was that the cause of World War I? Now, now we're in an interesting case because a German newspaper, as, well, for full disclosure, because Gerald Salenti will be our featured guest next week. He's a world-leading trend. And Gerald's been writing, because I, I, one of the hats I wear is that a writer and editor for the Trans Journal. Mm-hmm. And so in preparing the article coming out in Tuesday's journal on what's going on in Iraq and Iran and the Middle East, Gerald started writing about this probability of what happened last February. Really? And, yeah, because he was seeing the trends. He was uh-huh. seeing the forces at work where he said, I can't tell you this is going to happen, but don't be surprised if it does. Hmm. So we'll get into that next week. But the, no, the point is that chaos theory doesn't say everything's so chaotic we can't explain it. It's saying that there is always an initial cause. If we, in many cases, we can, we, if we have enough time and enough data especially now with supercomputers, we can actually, in many cases, trace back the original cause. But the system is so complex, we, can't, we couldn't have predicted it. Ah, Interesting. And so what, what chaos theory means, according to this article, is not that everything's so chaotic we can't predict things. It's that we can predict things. But the systems are so complex, often our predictions are either wrong or incomplete. Uh-huh. And you've got two things going on here. You've got predicting what will occur because of something, but you also have tracing back what caused right. this thing in this moment to occur. And they're both interesting processes. And the process of tracing back is a valuable one. First of all, it's valuable in 
psychology, psychiatry, depth psychology, which is the study of the unconscious, because why we'll ne- by definition, we'll never understand our unconscious because it's impenetrable. On the other hand, we can trace its effects back and say, okay, at least we can create a little bit of a map here. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of a map to get a little bit of orientation to help us travel a little more productively through, through the region. Um, but to think that we're going to know what's going to take place tomorrow. No. But, you know, I think that that tracing back is really useful, and a lot of people don't do it. They have a problem, and you say, what do you think caused it? I don't know. I just have it. Well, you know, <laughs> why did it happen? It was an accident. Yeah, but why did that accident happen? Mm. And I did that once with, angry with a very young child, and it was great because she'd spilled her orange juice in a public place. You know, she'd knocked it over, and I, and I wasn't mean to her. I mean, I loved the child, so I said, well, you know, what happened? <laughs> you know, I spilled the orange juice. I said, why do you think that happened? I don't know. It was an accident. I said, well, do you remember what you were doing when it happened? And she kind of pouted, and so I said, fine. And a few minutes later, she said, I think I was swinging my arm. And it was like, yeah, <laughs> but it was like I, I always, you know, I always think if I have an accident. I went through a period where I used to sprain my ankle all the time, and finally I started pinning down. When was it? Going downstairs, I'd miss the last step. And, you know, I'd end up on crutches, and I'd think, you know, you got to do something else about the way you walk down steps. And then I developed this thing that each step I would take, I would say in my head, zen, zen, zen. And I haven't sprained my ankle in a couple of right. decades. So, uh, first of all, that's a that's a brilliant analysis of of way the human brain can work effectively. At the same time, I think we need a little of that Zen Buddhist injection of, while that's a very smart process that has specifically prevented you from having more sprained ankles. We don't know what's going to cause that there isn't going to be another sprained ankle and what's going to cause it. So we, we work in that paradox. Right. That we'll, we can't know. There's an uncertainty principle. That's part of chaos theory also. That's part of quantum physics, the most successful scientific theory of all time. The uncertainty principle. Nothing is certain. Well, the other but there are probabilities that can help us most of the time. Yeah, and, and uh, but I think we're kind of being almost encouraged in our culture to think irrationally. So, for instance, in medicine, and, and you've gone to nutritionists and all kinds of things, and think, why am I having this problem? Well, take a pill. I mean, magical thinking, like, let's not figure out why you have stomach irritations. Oh, now let's you're into just, a big subject. And it's perfectly, <laughs> I know, it's, but it's connected. It's, it's perfectly it, connected, and why don't we explore that connection <laughs> when we come back from our first break? Okay, uh, we're gonna we have to stop here because, as usual, Ron picks the perfect song for the break. Now I know why you chose that because it's the cranberries in dreams. That's right. And and we were talking about the dream, right? But here's a perfect case. What I'm going to say is subjective, not objective. I get that. But I love I always love this song. It just it just gets I actually <laughs> start shaking when I hear it, and it's not. I first thought it was because, you know, I was spent so much of my life studying dreams and still love working with my dreams, although I work with them very differently now. 
Um, but that's not, that's one of the reasons I love this song. But somehow, and I know this is subjective, so I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> if you are going to compose a song that's extolling the nature of dreaming, how could you create a better vibrational sound than what they start mm. this off with? In other words, the very start, aside from the fact that their their voice the voices are so ethereal in a way and dreamlike, uh-huh. just the way they start this thing out and how the engineer gets a sound that almost sounds like we're in the it almost sounds within a second we're in actually we're actually in a dream. Uh-huh. So let's start that again. Oh, you want <laughs> yeah, start that again. That uh-huh. always gets me. Let's see if we can do that. Oh, of course we could. Hal, do it. can't get out of my yeah. chair when, when I listen to that. Yeah. What's with the Cranberries? Didn't they break up? They didn't have their long career? Am I totally um, wrong? I believe the lead singer has died. How dare she? Yeah, I know. I, are they Irish? I believe they are Irish. There's a sound there that I've never heard before. I don't know. There's something they're doing there. Yeah. They're speaking to your amygdala. They're speaking to their amygdala. Yours. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And hopefully a lot of people's. Anyway, let's take a break. Uh, I will tell you, this still is the Woodstock Roundtable. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. All right, good. And we're going to get a poem from Victoria. And then I'll explain the universe. And you'll explain the universe. All right. Well, when we get into this book I've been reading called A Society of Mind, which I don't necessarily recommend, it's, 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 it's one of the greatest brains in artificial intelligence trying to explain to us laypersons the connection between how computer brains work and human brains work. And he's brilliant and it's great. I understand about 5% of it. I'm reading it because I want to understand it. If I can understand 5%, I think I'm ahead of the game. Uh, It's not an easy read. But I I picked out one. What he does do that I like, Marshall McLuhan did it also, is um, each page is kind of a chapter in and of itself. Mm. So it's like modules because he says that's the way the brain works. Our our brains and other animal brains and computer brains all work through subagents, mm. modules. We think of our brain as a unified entity, right? We think of our brain as a unified entity. Yeah, I, I don't think of mine that way. Well, good, because it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a total story we tell ourselves. Um, and... That story sometimes works in our favor and often works in our disfavor. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. But you, you brought up a very interesting topic, Victoria, which is, you know, we're talking about how we don't like often spending the time of tracing back results back to their causes, which is a, the best way we have so far of dealing with things that are impenetrable, such as our dreams, our unconscious, or the dark matters of universe. But we can see their effects. And... Modern medicine, for lots of reasons, mostly money, um, take what are magnificent discoveries, namely 
medicinal drugs such as antibiotics. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't mm-hmm. for antibiotics. And we screw it up. As soon as someone comes in with a pain, they want instant relief, we give them a pill for it. The problem is that doesn't give us any information about what caused the pain. And so often it comes back so, as a different kind of pain mm-hmm. because the cause hasn't been dealt with. Well, so you're right. Do they really go for causes. I mean, also, if you look at ads, I mean, you can't help but see a lot of medical ads on TV these days because that's about 90% of the advertising mm-hmm. it seems to me. And you see these really quite heavy people and they're t- trying to take something to get their A1C down. And they're saying, wow, you take this pill and your A1C, you know, it's it's a seven or below, which isn't that A1C, great. are you saying? Yeah, it's, it's a blood factor thing that tells you about basically sugar and, and the closeness you are to diabetes. And people should know their A1C number, but most people don't. So they're telling you, you know, how to get it down. But you're looking at these people and you're thinking, if you took off 20 or 30 pounds, it would go down a whole lot. Now, admittedly, that's a lot harder than taking a pill. But it's just, it's magical thinking. We're going to do it with a pill. Mm-hmm. And, or I have a friend who can't sleep and I'll say, well, what do you do? And I, well, I can't sleep. I said, well, you know, turns out she sleeps always on the sofa. Uh, She falls asleep in front of the TV. It turns out it's good for you to actually go get in your bed. Uh, It's good for you to stop watching TV about an hour before you want to sleep. It's good for you to have a ritual, whatever it is, whether it's taking off your clothes and putting on your pajamas or getting naked if that's how you sleep. But that there's steps that are sending signals to your brain and if you don't do any of them, you're more likely to have trouble sleeping. Yeah. There are also, as we've discussed, what got me into dream work <clears throat> was first learning self-hypnosis and visualization techniques, which are very similar to dream work. Mm-hmm. It's slowing down the brain waves. And so it doesn't always work for me, but often, literally, literally, if you, it's like you know, counting sheep is actually a brilliant strategy. It's a self-hypnotic strategy. Um, but count from 100 down to zero slowly. And if you lose track, which will happen, start again. Instead of being frustrated, it's just a game, right? But if you count from 100 down to zero slowly, and when your mind wanders and you stop the count or lose count, you go back to 100, it'll be easier to fall asleep because why? You're slowing down your brain waves. And sleep is the slowest our brain waves get. Waking is, is they call them beta waves. And when we're in beta, we are, we are like our ancestors who are on the lookout for saber-toothed tigers. We're lying in bed saying, I'm relaxing. No, you're not. Not if you're in a beta state of mind. You're not relaxing. To make your point, however, a ritual can automatically slow down the brain wave. So in other words, for some people, not all, the act of taking off one's clothes, putting on pajamas or not, is a signal, a physiological signal. If we had an MRI watching the brain, we would actually see the brain wave slowing down just by taking off our clothes and, mm-hmm. and with the intention of getting into bed. Right, and you have a special room that you can go into. I mean, this is, you know, as we say, first world problem. A lot of people around the world don't have this, but most people have a bedroom. But everybody, everybody has a brain that can, that, whose brain waves can be slowed down because as we all know, even... Many of our listeners and many of us who do the ritual, we get undressed, we get into bed. You're right. Either the TV's on or the smartphone's on, which disrupts 
gets those brain waves cranked up again. Um, although it would be interesting if on your smartphone you turned on a YouTube video of uh, uh, like that has a hypnotic effect, you know, like a a sound a sound that slows the brain waves down. That might help. But we all know we've gotten into bed, we've done the ritual, but our brain is on overdrive. We're worried about what's the, something that's neat. We can't get our minds off what has to get done the next day. That's where the technique comes in. You count from 100 down to zero. Yeah, but then the but then I tomorrow I got start again at 100. Eventually, the mind will get tired of thinking about tomorrow and will slow down. Um, but it's a lot easier just take a drug. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and sometimes the drug is warranted. The problem, as you say, is often the drug isn't neutral in its effects. It has negative counter and that s- right side effects. thing that might have caused this, whether it's what caused your depression or what caused your obesity or what caused anything, is not addressed. And the unconscious is we learn from dream work or anyone who's done good therapy work. Um, and I just lost my thought, <laughs> which is probably a good thing, uh, which is that uh, there are techniques we can learn. We don't learn. We were given this amazing tool called the brain and our educational system does a really crappy job of giving us a good manual for how to operate it. We learn reading, writing, arithmetic. We learn certain reason skills. Then we learn all the BS that our culture wants us to believe. We, do, we are not taught to think for ourselves. Our educational system does not teach us to think for ourselves. And how many courses did you take in slowing down your brain waves? Mm. That should be, along with, re- how could that not be as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic? Learning it's how to slow down your brain waves. Not in the curriculum. Okay. Right. So, you know. Just like they're dropping gym because they don't have time for it or they can't afford it. Oh, here was the, the point that, that flew out of my consciousness. Yep. Here was the point that flew out of my consciousness. Our unconscious is going to have its say one way or another. So, yeah, sometimes the drug is warranted. Sometimes it's the most effective tool. It can be a life-saving tool. The problem with it is, is that when it covers up the cause, which might be unconscious, the fact that one thing is solved by the drug, the unconscious will create a problem somewhere else. And now I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit, but we know, we just know from Carl Jung on, for Sigmund Freud on down, while we're never going to understand our unconscious, we have tools to at least interfacing with it mm-hmm. and, ga- and getting what, what, what Jung called the gold of wisdom out of it, the insight out of it. Um, anyone who's worked their dreams knows that while the uncertainty principle exists, which is even the simplest dream, like the butterfly effect, could, could unearth ravel or disclose a really important complex issue that we would do well to deal with often it's the darkest most uncomfortable dream that has the most insight and wisdom mm-hmm. right and the reason is at least in my experience and based on the teachers i learned from is because usually if we have a really nasty nightmare 
that's the result of much less nasty dreams that we didn't pay attention to. And so it's our unconscious's way of getting our attention for something we've been ignoring. Hmm. So, but we tend, we want to take the drug and cover it up. And it works up to a point. The other interesting thing I think in the culture today is, although I think we've been very not really wanting to look at all the dark side of things, doctors are starting to say in their list of things that are problematic, you know, like eating too much sugar or this or that, they are starting to say, and stress. You know, like they finally recognize that it's not just physical things that are bothering you, that that stress is a problem, that stress can make you sick. Mm-hmm. And they don't tell you how to get rid of the stress, but they point out that you should bring it down. And it's like, really? Most people are not trained. It, it just but see, now we get into said. something that's very, 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 to me, the crux of the matter. Because I'm going to bring up cannabis, right? Now, use properly any plant can be an ally. Just look at, that's one thing indigenous cultures had down. And I don't glorify indigenous cultures as if they were better than us because they had some pretty nasty rituals themselves. And, you know, these, like, everyone wants to, like, say, well, the Aztecs were brilliant. Yes, they were. They also buried infants uh, <laughs> to please, the, to, to make sure the gods weren't going to be mad at Most them. Most ancient people had, did infanticide. Okay. Um, but the, but <laughs> my point is, I'm not here to uh, glorify or romanticize about indigenous cultures, but they did have something down that we've lost, which is a relationship with the earth, and particularly a relationship with the healing nature of plants. And marijuana is a plant. Now, um, Anything can be, orange juice can be abused, okay? You drink too much orange juice, you're going to get sick. But the point is that um, uh, the one reason that marijuana has been illegal for so long is because it works so damn well. And it interferes with the corporate profits of drug manufacturers. True. Um, and um, and we, have, we, we, we have a particular, there's a part of American culture that still, controlled by the, the mindset of pilgrims and evangelicals, and the pilgrims were evangelicals, which says we don't want people uh, too comfortable having too much pleasure. That's not a good thing for society. Right, it distracts That's another reason. you. And if you don't want people to feel good, then make marijuana illegal. <laughs> right. Because that plant used properly doesn't have the negative effects that most medicinal drugs have and it certainly and has all the benefits generally gets rid of stress although yeah. for some people the odd occasional person says oh no it makes me nervous okay then don't do it yeah i have a couple of friends <laughs> who if they take a little bit of marijuana they get paranoid okay i get it um maybe because they're afraid of being arrested or uh, afraid of take, uh, getting take, high <laughs> take away the illegality <laughs> well that it. might be part of it in their case i think it's <laughs> physiological but the point is for most people it is a godsend it's a it's a healing plant yeah but that's the difference you see between so you say well wait a minute i mean look digitalis which helps stop heart attacks it comes from a plant foxglove but it, it's not no longer the plant it, it has been scientifically altered okay we're talking about uh relationships right and how we human beings relate to the world. And usually it's from an arrogant place of wanting to control it mm-hmm. as opposed to working with it. Or wanting the easy answer. I mean, yeah. I think it's a lot also of 
instant gratification. Oh, yeah. You, you probably had some of those people on the radio at some point. The, the, the two-minute meditation. Right. You don't really need to meditate for 10 or 20 <laughs> minutes. Well, you could do a two-minute. I'm not sure how much help that's going to be. Well, I, I, I think it's better to do two minutes than not. <laughs> but what I would say to people is very simple. Don't take our word for it. Try the two-minute meditation. If that works for you, good. I'm not, yeah. not going to say it doesn't. But, um, it doesn't replace but that doesn't mean <laughs> the one week in the wilderness. <laughs> right. Living with animals and smoking pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to uh, this one, uh, one page in a book called Society of Mind by Marvin Minsky. And his basic principle is that, that when, we, when we study the human brain as well as the computer brain, we see that it, the human brain, like the computer brain, consists of modules. All right, here we go. Marvin Minsky, suppose that while you walked and talked, you could watch the signals that traverse your brain. Well, now we can, by the way. Right. In his day, we couldn't in 80, 1986. Now we can actually do that. Would that make any sense to you? Many people have done experiments to make such signals audible and visible by using biofeedback devices. So they could do it back then, just not as accurately as with MRI, et cetera. This often helps a person to learn to control various muscles and glands that are not usually under conscious control, but it never leads to comprehending how the hidden circuits work, the unconscious ones. Scientists encounter similar problems when they use electronic instruments to tap into brain signals. This has led to a good deal of knowledge about how nervous systems work. But those insights and understandings never came from observation by itself. One cannot use data without having at least the beginning of a theory or an hypothesis. Because even if we could directly sense all the interior details of our mental life, it wouldn't tell us how to understand them. It might even make that enterprise more difficult by overwhelming our capacity to interpret what we see. By the way, that's called cognitive dissonance, one of my favorite uh -huh. phrases, because we're all, because of the times we live in, where thanks to computer technology, which could create the next renaissance, but is also creating mass anxiety because it's speeding everything up. Change is happening faster, not just arithmetically, but exponentially faster than ever before in human history. And it's creating both the potential for huge advances and leaps in evolution. It's also causing anxiety. And cognitive dissonance is when too much information is flooding the brain at one time and the brain's only solution is to shut down. And usually also it seems in cognitive dissonance that not only are you getting too much, but you're getting warring theories. Right. And, and so you're really cognitively dissonant but because it's like, well, 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 which one is it? But here's where, whether it's Zen or whatever spiritual practice you have or self-defense techniques come in um, where, where you practice dealing with too much information, okay? Because guess what? You live in the world, there are gonna be times when too much information's coming at us. Yeah. And we can't just shut the brain down. We have to act. And that's where you, the practice of self-defense comes in, you know, certain therapies come in, um, meditation can come in, uh, where do we get the ideas we need? Most of our concepts, here we go, most of our ideas come from the communities in which we're raised. 
Even the ideas we get for ourselves come from communities, this time the ones inside our heads. Brains do not manufacture thoughts in the direct ways that muscles exert force or ovaries make estrogens. Instead, to get a good idea, one must engage huge organizations of sub-agents that do a vast variety of jobs. Each human brain contains hundreds of kinds of computations that are developed over hundreds of millions of years of evolution and each with a different architecture. Certain sections of the brain distinguish the sounds of voices from other sorts of sounds. Other specialized agencies in our brains distinguish the sights of faces from other types of objects. No one knows how many different such organs lie in our brains, but it is almost certain that they all employ different types of programming and forms of representation that share no common language code. Hmm. Now, you might say, well, now we have these sophisticated MRI machines. We can see. No, we can't. We have billions of neurons and trillions of synaptic connections. Right. The one thing that would have changed from when he wrote that is they say we have different organs in our brains. We're much more clear now that it's neuron connections, not organs. Right, but the, but we now found neurons in the intestinal tract. That's only recent. So our brain is not just inside our head. It's connected to our intestinal tract. Right. But, and and it, it could go further than well, that. Well, you know, you can analyze your own thinking sometimes and see almost the categories in your brain. Up to a point with practice. But his point is that isn't it amazing that we can function at all? <laughs> because the fact of the matter is that simply, in another chapter, he makes the case, he explains why very early in computer history, computers very quickly got better than the best human at math, at computing numbers, okay? Right. We now know that it's much better than our best chess players and our best, go right? But they still, the reason we don't have self-driving cars is because while right now there's no human being or group of human beings that can compete with a computer when it comes to mathematical skills, computer, we're still having trouble teaching computers how to stack boxes on top of each other. Well, that's partly like hands. No, things. it has to do with the complexity of vision and touch, etc. Mm. In other words, what Minsky explains is because it's amazing that what we learned as infants, by the what we learned, age one, age two, age three, how to grab something, right? How to build blocks, how to um, uh, embrace a hug a doll. Mm -hmm how to recognize one face as opposed to another face. Those things that our human brain is learning at age one, two, and three is more complicated, it turns out, and the reason is that if you, and this is why we read from the book Range, why generalists are doing better in the 21st century than specialists, which wasn't true in the, in the 20th century, okay? Specialists are in trouble. Um, and the reason is because if you give the human brain a specialty and it's constantly reading and studying and experimenting with and learning that 
one channel of information, it can become a genius. A computer can do that better than any human, though. A computer can take one channel of information and use it much more effectively than the human brain can. But what the computer can't do yet is is jump from one category to another. Mm -hmm. And so the same computer that can beat our best brilliant chess champion, right, cannot figure out how to take the information it knows about chess and say apply it to geopolitics and what's going on in the Middle East. Because that requires the integration or what Minsky would call a society of mind. The mm -hmm. reason we function at all as human beings is because we have, we somehow are able to collaborate these millions of different modules in our brains, agents, that don't speak the same language and somehow figure out how to live in the world. It's almost as if Imagine if we if we were in a room here. Gus joined us. Hi, Gus. So there's four of us. So imagine if we were all only understood a different language from each other, French, uh, Chinese. I don't even want to make them all like rom romance languages because Brooklynese. Well, I mean, there's certain things. Swahili for you. Swahili. There are certain things that are similar to French and Italian. Okay. Right. So let's say uh, you're, you're you're French. Okay, good. French. Gus, Je suis you're Swahili. <laughs> you're Chinese. Uh -huh. Okay. And I'm um, the language that the Incans, the Incans right. spoke. Okay? Okay. That's all we know. We could still communicate through body language. Yes. Right? But we're not gonna have a we're not gonna have an easy time solving a complex issue. <laughs> well, guess what? Our brains are doing that all the time and that's and what they're doing is no different from the experiment I just proposed, and and Minsky has a whole book written about how our brains learn to do that and how computers learn to do that, and also the difference between what separates us from the human. But the overall thing I get from his book is that because it's it's a very difficult read, <laughs> but what it does is it just further accentuates the point that. If we do it right, we're not just going to build computers that make our lives more comfortable. If you read at the end of, you know, at the end of the year, magazines always do a, all right, the best of high tech in 2019, right? Mm -hmm. Or here are our predictions for where AI is going in next year, right? Um, it's always the practical stuff. It's always, it's, it, the, almost all of it is about practical results. Um, you know, things that make our lives more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But if we're, but what we need to do is as computers get smarter and smarter, they can help us get smarter and smarter. And one example of it is MRI machines are computer-based and they help us look into the human brain. But it's up to us to take that information and figure out how to use our brains better. Otherwise, we're just going to, and this may be what's happening and some futurists are predicting it, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, computers are going to basically run the world. We're going to either give them the power to do it out of laziness or they're going to take it over out of some, because they're going to end up turning out just like us. They like to control things. Right. 
Well, the MRI can show you what's going on, but it can't it explain can't it. Explain it. it can't. Right. If we do this right, we will continue to take use computer intelligence to help us become more aware of how we can think and act better. But, you know, the whole most difficult issue is the moral ethical one, I think, in the long run. And we can't solve that as humans. Well, but we have— We can't choose an ethics that we all believe in. Uh, yeah. And look at the assassination a few days ago. Okay. I mean, it's an assassination. Is that ethical? Okay. But you're right. <laughs> we're, still, we're still violent mammals mm-hmm. after all— after all the Zen and all the Buddhism and all the great Hindu philosophy and all the great Kabbalistic insights and all the great Sufi insights from the Arab world, we're still killing each other and not feeding people, even though we're the richest country on earth. Okay, I get it. But we did, as I mentioned before, I thought about this. I said, hmm, I wonder if what we could create a spiritual algorithm. Algorithms are the way computers function. They're rules, of, they're, they're rules that are followed. And then I realized we did thousands of years ago. We human beings, our ancestors, created a brilliant spiritual algorithm. It's absolutely brilliant. We just don't follow it. (laughs) It's called the the golden rule. Right. Think of it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is so freaking brilliant. But what do you do when others don't do that? (laughs) You know, in in, uh, War and Peace, there's a scene where... Pierre, who's one of the heroes, has an opportunity to kill Napoleon. And he has a gun and he's aiming at Napoleon, but he doesn't do it. Would it have been immoral to do that? Or would it have been life-saving? If someone wanted to kill Hitler, would that have been an immoral thing to kill Hitler? Or would that have been a good thing? And we don't have an objective thing. That's what we need. But we even have language problems. Because when you say, would that be a good thing? You know, what is the good uh, I mean, we have such problems right now in the world with so many warring ideologies, and everybody believes there's this right. I want to go back to a good point Ron made. I said we came up with a brilliant spiritual algorithm, which is phrased differently in different cultures, but basically comes down to do unto others as you would have them do. Mm-hmm. The ability of the—think about the. As far as we know, no other animal has this ability, although possibly dolphins— um, and the ability to see someone else as totally connected to you and realizing that you're not, that person's as important as you are and that you can actually, in a sense, in your own mind, feel what's going on in someone else or at least feel close to what someone else is feeling called empathy, mm-hmm. right? And you said, okay, but what if the person, other person isn't acting by the golden rule. How right. do I act by the golden rule? Well, that situation, I thought, was presented rather brilliantly by Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Mahatma Gandhi successfully defeated the British Army through nonviolence. We have had such victories, and I agree that Mahatma Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King and the advocates of nonviolence, and they are my heroes. But they're, they're lone examples in a world of endless, brutal fighting from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, my favorite misnomer, uh, <laughs> to the rest of the world. Okay. Where, 
large and small. People are planting bombs and and shooting people okay. and torturing people and putting we're them in prison. We're way past our break, but we're going to keep going anyway. <laughs> we do have to get the break. But my point is you're 100% right. The, the, the point is, does that mean it has to continue going that way? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're going to blow each other up. The one, and I, listen, being a pessimist, I'm being honest, being a pessimist is more fun than being an optimist. It just is. <laughs> it's just more fun. But, because um, we, we like our anger, and our anger it can be righteous, right? But, but here's my ray of optimism. Okay. I honestly believe the following thought experiment. Ready? Here's a thought experiment. The four of us in this studio and everyone listening right now are members of an alien race, which is light years more intelligent than human beings. Okay? Mm -hmm. And we're able to observe certain civilizations around the solar system and the universe, and we happen to be watching at these humans on the planet Earth. Right? I'm, I'm with you. With me so far? Okay. <laughs> I got a question I'm going to ask you, Uh-oh. my fellow alien. Yes, right. okay. <laughs> now, let's transport ourselves back to uh, 1961 when uh, Russia and the United States have nuclear weapons pointed at each other during the Cold War. Or let's go back to the 50s when the U.S. and, the, and uh, the Soviet Union both had nuclear weapons and were in the midst of a Cold War. And we're watching and we're, we're, we're observing like a laboratory human behavior. And we, we see World War II and we see World War I and we see um, the uh, desecration of the, of the Native Americans by the American pioneers, Right. What odds would we have given that the human beings would still be around in 2020? Yeah, um, I, I'm surprised we're here. Would we be? No, we're, <laughs> no, we're now the aliens. We're not the as the okay. okay. I I would have betted. I would have bet against us and been yeah. very confident in my bet. Yeah, I, I am I, I an alien, too. and I see all this, and I think it just goes on and on. And I'm not surprised they're still here because they're clever little bastards. Why does your alien? Why does your alien sound like a bad Indian guru? Because I didn't learn English as okay. my native language. No, but, but you get my point. Yeah. In a way, it's amazing that human beings are even here at all. Considering the fact that we've been aiming nuclear, that the the people, the, the same principle you're talking about, the mammalian brain just at war with other mammalian brains, which is horrible. But, you know, we could also the just... The fact is, those same mammalian brains haven't blown each other up. Okay, the, the they haven't idea. blown each other up, but, but climate change is such that we may not have to blow each other up. We may just well, go extinct uh, because right. the that water be. gets hotter and or the air we gets may, dirtier. Or we may find a solution And, and let me ask ourselves. you this, which is more likely? Okay, let's assume... You may be right. We may not find us, and there's nothing. In, there's nothing in the complexity chaos theory of evolution that says human beings have to exist ad infinitum. Okay, we might go the way of the dinosaurs, but let's assume for just for an ex- thought experiment that we actually survive the next hundred years. That means we dealt with climate change, right? Right. What are the odds that we're gonna that we could solve climate change just with human brains alone? Not good. What are the odds with human brains um, connecting 
uh, effectively and efficiently with computer brains. Only if we let the computers make the decisions. I disagree. Only if we <laughs> only if we use the best of both brains. The the computer brain already knows that we're on a death trail. But it may not be able. It, the comp, it may not be able to. The fig- data is there. Yeah, but the data on how to solve it is not exactly. And so, well, I think that might be there too, so, but it's political will. Well, we'll see. But your, you see, your your <laughs> your philosophy is AI. AI does not just refer to the objects. AI is a philosophy that says human beings will do best if we just make computers as smart as we can. IA, less known, I think more important, and I'm determined to help it make a comeback. IA stands for intelligent augmentation. Different philosophy. Right. The IA philosophy is we'll do best if we use computer intelligence to help us make ourselves wiser and more intelligent. But wiser? Big difference. It, more intelligent, but wiser? You're not I, buying it. I'm not buying it. Man. Okay. Mm. Uh-uh. <laughs> Once again, I have failed to make a sale. Hey, hey. That doesn't mean we won't take a break. <laughs> Time all through the ages, Happy New Year. In late December.